0: Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Game, and I am your host. Today, our guest, Chuck O, he was born and raised in Mesa, Arizona. He couldn't explain why he kept getting into trouble as a young kid. After his 70th, that's not a typo, 70th separate felony, he became a ward of the state at the young age of 13. After living in a home with other convicted felons until 18, Chuck went on tour with the Grateful Dead, where his drinking and substance use picked up significantly. I mean, obviously. How could it not? After an arduous journey with substance use that left him hopelessly addicted to heroin, Chuck turned to Medication Assisted Treatment, MAT, to help him transition off heroin through the use of methadone. Chuck found the 12-step program while on medication-assisted treatment. In this episode, he talks about breaking the stigma on being sober on MAT and openly shares his story of relapse after years of recovery and how he and his family dealt with it and helped him find recovery again and ultimately slowly transition off MAT. I'm so excited that we were able to get a guest on here that has experience and good ex- a good experience with MAT medication-assisted treatment, often uh, known as methadone or Suboxone. Um, It's also under – people sometimes refer to it as harm reduction. I think it is a really important conversation to have. I know that there are heroin addicts and out there like Chuck who cannot get sober without this medication, and they are risking their lives by turning it down. But I also know that many people believe that you are not sober if you are on mat so you know there's a lot of controversy about this and i wanted to bring someone on who could weigh in and give you guys a real understanding of how this one person used mat to save his life and heal his family which is just incredible um the story his story is just incredible absolutely incredible um and the fact that he's alive is just shocking. So I'm so excited for you guys to hear Chuck. He He's an incredible guy. He's an incredible man in recovery. And uh, I just, I hope you enjoy this story and learn a little bit about MAT. So without further ado, episode 73, let's do this. All right, Chuck, thank you so much for being here.
1: Absolutely. My pleasure.
0: This is really fun. We were just chatting that you went on tour with The Grateful Dead. So I'm very excited to get into that. How Chuck? How long have you been sober?
1: I got sober this time on February third of two thousand eighteen. So a little over two and a half years
0: now. Awesome. And what? How long did you have before that?
1: My previous run in sobriety, I almost got to five years from two thousand nine through two
0: thousand thirteen. And something that's interesting when I was, you know, learning more about your history, that you started this so so young. There was. A lot of trauma, a lot of opportunity for trauma, and it's been. It's. I I think I don't think there are a lot of people who've been through the things that you've been through that end up getting and staying sober. So it's it's pretty miraculous that you're here with us and you've been able to stay sober. I want to ask you about. So you were born and raised in Arizona, Mesa, Arizona, and but you went to jail very, very young, and stayed there. What How did that end up happening?
1: So uh, my story, I just I was always a nuisance, never really a thug. And um, I really identify with the ism and alcoholism because it tells us in the book that it explains many things for which we otherwise can't account. And there's no accounting for what happened to me as a kid. I grew up in a good home very middle-class, working-class parents. My brother, who grew up in the exact same house as I did with all of the same circumstances, was perfect, never got in any trouble, Like ended up going all the way through school and getting a PhD, and I never could make it to high school. So I don't really know why I started doing these things, but when I was like about 10 years old, I started getting into a lot of criminal behavior, experimenting with alcohol and smoking cigarettes and pot and that kind of thing.
0: Who's giving a 10-year-old these things? Like how, how does that come The to primary
1: you? source was a guy named David who lived in an apartment complex next to our house and his mm-hmm. father worked nights and he had an older brother. Okay. So we had the apartment to ourselves with a 16-year-old. Right, okay. Who was kind of a nerdy guy and so he was down with hanging out with 10 and 11-year-old kids, but Right. <laughs> In the early days, that was our primary source.
0: Okay. Okay. So, and then when you were doing the the like criminal activity, what was going on through your head? Like you were, what was it like breaking in, stealing, like petty theft?
1: I would steal cars, break into houses, all property crimes. Like There was never any violent crime involved, but lots and lots and lots of property crimes. And so I started getting consequences, of course. And in Arizona, it's, and probably everywhere, it's super expensive to incarcerate a juvenile because they still have to act like they care about rehabilitation. So <laughs> they would give me probation, intensive probation, house arrest, task, like you name it, everything you could possibly. Even weekends in jail. At one point, I got at and what age? This is like ten through thirteen. And finally, I had ended up being arrested for my 70th separate felony, as crazy as that sounds. And um, I had gone through all these previous consequences, and my PO told me, if you get locked up or if you get arrested one more time, we're going to lock you up, make you a ward of the state, which automatically means you're sentenced to your 18th birthday. And um, sure enough, I got arrested again, and that's what happened.
0: Okay, so that's funny because I was like, oh, 70th felony. Oh, that's a typo. That was seven. That's not 70,
1: 70, 70. Yeah. And what would end up happening? Usually is when they would arrest me, they would have like every crime in the area. And I was guilty of most of them, but they would (laughs) stack up 14 charges and they would say, all right, if you accept this plea, we'll find you guilty of 10 of them. So,
0: and as a juvenile, they still, they would find you guilty and still not put you away.
1: Well, they would give me every consequence other than yeah. permanently incarcerating me. And the reason was my parents would always come to court. And that was like the mm-hmm. dividing line. If your parents yeah. would show up at court yep. and yep. you're familiar with these systems. So I,
0: they would... I'm very, I'm, I was awarded the state by the time I was 16.
1: <laughs> yeah. So my parents are just really good people and they were always willing to show up and they'll say, he's going to be a good boy and all we're, of that.
0: We're going to throw some money at it. Yeah. So, so okay, your 70th felony, that's fucking insane. And so then PO is like, bro, you got to go, you're going in. You're 13 and you, what What was the crime you got arrested on that put you in that, that, where they actually decided to incarcerate you?
1: So I was breaking into a Landish Schwinn bicycle shop because I had a drug dealer who would trade mountain bikes for dope. And I was trying to throw a rock through the window, the front door window of this Schwinn bike shop. And a cop just happened to be driving down Southern Road at the same time I was trying to throw the rock through the window. It was like four o'clock in the morning. So er, they do a U-turn and they get there faster than I can run. And um, yeah. What kind of drugs were you doing? So I'm a downhill skier. I would drink, take pills a lot. I smoked a lot of weed. And then occasionally I would do meth. And primarily the reason I would do meth is because I would always have to be running away from home. And on meth, I could stay up all night. And really, I'm just a frightened little boy. Like, I don't want to go sleep outside and who knows what's going to happen. And if I'm on meth, I can stay up and break into cars and break into beer coolers at bars and all that kind of stuff. So,
0: Did you have any, like early trauma or anything that sparked the fire for this behavior?
1: In my opinion, this had nothing to do with it, but it is a fact that my parents split up when I was in fifth grade. And looking back on it, I was super angry. during They were apart for a year. Their divorce never got finalized. And then after a year, they decided to get back together. During that year, I was just super angry and I don't know why. And I started stealing a lot of stuff from stores and, and that kind of stuff. And my dad was somewhat physically abusive to me and never my brother. But I always looked at it as I always gave my dad lots of reasons
0: right, right. to he get the belt frustrated. out. Yeah.
1: And my brother never did. So I don't, in, in my mind, that really doesn't have anything to do with it. But those are facts that occurred when I was a kid. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So you went, this is interesting to me. So you get incarcerated, you're 13 and they put you in for over a year, but they put you into prehab of Arizona <laughs> and the prehab though is actually for sex offenders.
1: Is yeah. Get that so th- right? This is the craziest thing ever. And I mean, I've I, never,
0: I don't understand anything of what this is, but yes, tell me.
1: Okay, yeah, and it's all fact-checkable because it's going to sound crazy. But um, so Prehab is this organization that ran a group of like kind of halfway house for criminals. And they had several facilities that were just for run-of-the-mill criminals like me. And this one facility called Dorothy Mitchell Residence. So I'm locked up forever. I think I'm going to be there until I'm 18. And my PO happened to have a personal relationship with this guy named Carl who ran the Dorothy Mitchell Residence. And so I have no idea what she's talking about, but she comes to me and says they're doing a program at this place called Prehab, and if you can go successfully complete it, which you probably could do in less than a year, you're done, and you're free. You're going to be on parole until you're 18, but you won't be incarcerated anymore. So I didn't even ask any questions. Right. (laughs) Okay. Oops. (laughs) Where do I sign up? And, um, so they transport me to this facility and it's a house. And right away I'm struck by the fact that there's no barbed wire. Cause I had been behind barbed wire for a long time and I easily could have just jumped the fence and I happened to break my arm the last day I was in jail. So I'm in a brand new cast and I, I get to this facility and I still have no idea what I'm about to participate in. And they start introducing me to all the kids that were there. And I could tell there was something different about these kids I couldn't quite put my finger on it yet but there was they just looked different they talked different there was just something not quite right and then these they started telling me why they were there and they were all juvenile sex offenders and we're talking like horrific sex crimes like 16 year olds who were molesting 3 and 4 year olds and just really really bad stuff and they had this policy where for the first 24 hours that you were there you had to be on cleaning duty and so you'd be washing windows and cleaning bathrooms this and that someone hands me a water like a windex bottle and tells me to wash the windows on the front of the dorms and i look around and i see this small little chain link fence that i can easily hop over with my broken arm i jump the fence i run to a payphone call a friend and say i just landed in the craziest place maybe on planet earth. I need you to come pick me up right away. And we hung out and partied for the afternoon and the evening, but we're still kids. So he's got to go home and go to bed and go to school. And I've got nowhere to go. And I've been locked up forever and have no money. So I have him drop me off at my parents' house. I knock on the door and they're like, what are you doing? You're Getting locked up until you're 18, and I said I can't. It's just, and I told them what was going on. They said you have to just go give it a try. It's you're gonna, you know, this is your 18th birthday, and I'm years away from that. So I go back, and they explain to me that what they're doing is they're taking a small group of non-sex offenders, five in this case, and they're going to have us model age-appropriate, socially appropriate behavior to the sex offenders. And you know, I I was just out of options, resources, and places to go. And so there I was. And it was pretty interesting. Um, I'm grateful today that I had that experience because it taught me more about tolerance than anything I've ever learned in my life since. And I've spent a lot of time in the rooms of 12-step recovery. But what I quickly learned as I went through the circles and the group with these guys, I played basketball with them every day. I quickly learned that every single one of them, and I looked hard for an exception, hard. There was not a single exception. Every single kid had been a victim before they were an abuser. And that really struck me. Like These kids were taught they had trauma that they dealt with as children, and they're getting taught that this is the way that you express that. And I had to learn how to be okay intermingling and Living life with a group of people that I had only thought of as monsters before this experience.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. It's a really interesting thing when you. I worked in Arizona, actually, at a at a place that was uh, a home for developmentally disabled juvenile adjudicated sex offenders, and they were young. They were young kids, but they were also um, developmentally disabled, and it was the same thing. And I think the fact that they were developmentally disabled made it a little bit different. But when I have come in contact with people, I did in treatment come in contact with people who had struggled. It was always learned massive abuse. And I don't think that makes, you know, I don't think that's a good excuse, but it certainly is. And, you know, we certainly can understand that trauma creates traumatized people. Traumatized people also traumatize people.
1: Yeah, and my position today, if anyone is an abuser of children, I think that person belongs in prison, regardless of whether they've experienced personal trauma or not, because we have to protect children. But I can empathize to a degree that I never would have been able to had I not lived among them for this period of time.
0: How did it work? like, did you stay there and then model that behavior? Like, I I guess I I don't totally follow their logic in terms of you guys modeling behavior, but whatever, that's neither here nor there. Did you do the six months and then get out?
1: Yeah. And they handpicked kids who were criminals, obviously, or they wouldn't have been there, but they handpicked kids who did well socially. And I never had any problems socially. I I always made friends easily and that kind of thing. So something that my PO saw in me made her think I would be a good candidate for this behavior. And I'll say this, they had a remarkable success rate because usually recidivism is 100% when you're talking about sex offenders. And the prehab model, like there are people, I'm still friends with the therapist, Carl Schwartz, who ran the place. I don't know if I should say the last name. I'm still friends with Carl, who ran the place, and I know of several of the kids that were in there while he was running it that did not go on to reoffend, which I think is really important.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. That's that's man, we've got a big problem in that area. So I think it's uh, any solutions we can find are important.
1: And it was lucky for me because they only did the program I'm talking to you about for a short period of time, less than a year. So I just happened to catch lightning in a bottle and come along at the one possible time where I can get years trimmed off the time I would have been incarcerated otherwise.
0: It's uh, My dad always says, better to be lucky than good. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Uh, For a long time, I didn't know what that means, but I I do now. Um, Yeah, me too. (laughs) So you, how old were you when you got out of prehab?
1: So I was coming up on 16 when I got out. And by this point in my life, I'm so far behind on credits. Like there's no chance I'm ever going to finish school or, or anything like that. So they did one thing right at the end of my time there. They did this thing where they took the five non-sex offenders to this program called PLIP, which, they, which is where they take us to a maximum security prison called Florence in Arizona. And it's the prison life information program. And we do this tour of the prison and there's a, Guard, who's this little old man that has no gun? And the first place we go is maximum security. And I see all these killers, and I'm like, oh my god! And um, and they don't yell at us like they did in Scared Straight, but they take us through every part of the pro- prison, protective custody, death row, and then we go to the north unit, which is where all the trustees are. They have a group of guys come into a classroom, and they just tell us what's going to happen in a very logical, matter-of-fact way. This is what's going to happen. If you become an inmate and that like really got my attention because I was a small kid and I walked out of that prison saying, I will never jaywalk again ever <laughs> in my life. Like this what, is sketchy. what What did
0: they, what did they tell you?
1: They told us that the, the whites, the blacks and the Mexican mafia run the prison. The guards tell them when they can shower and when they can eat, but the gangs make the rules. They tell us you're either going to be a member of the gang, which requires a pretty gnarly initiation, having to do some dirt that, you're not going to like and could possibly get you a bunch of extra time. Or you can be a lone wolf and then you're just going to be a victim of all the gangs. They told us how the extortion rackets ran. If you have a family or anyone who's willing to put money on your books, you better be part of one of these gangs. And they told us the freaks come out at night, the strong survive in prison. Just a bunch of really spooky stuff where if they had been yelling about it. I might have tuned it out, but these were just stone cold killers talking a very matter-of-fact game and they got my attention. And I was good probably for a good 2 months after that.
0: <laughs> I mean, 2 months you got you get what you get. Okay, so 2 months after so you get out but you're not going back to school. So what do you do when you're out?
1: So because of the terms of my parole, I had to register for high school every year, but I never completed a class ever. The last year of school I completed was the seventh grade. So I would go and I would hang out in the smoking area, meet the kids who were into the kind of stuff I was in, and then just not go back until the next semester. And then just back to the same, partying, doing lots of drugs, just being a non-productive member of society.
0: (laughs) So, okay. And uh, that sounds amazing that you got... I I mean, there's so much there. There's there's so much about that that is just incredible. And, And I love that you mentioned how your brother grew up in the same house with the same family under the same circumstances, but turned out very differently because... I know, you know, I I am one of three girls and my, you know, particularly my youngest sister, you know, we grew up in the same home but we did not go the same direction and so much of what happens with addiction is, you know, environment loads the gun and I'm sorry, genetics load the gun and environment pulls the trigger and I think that there's a lot to be said for the fact that you came out of this, you know, people want to find the reason that as particularly such a young kid would do these things. And I think when we're driven to feel differently than we feel all the time, no matter what, that that just takes over and and that becomes our life. And you also get so deep in, like you were so deep. You were so deep in. Uh, how could you go back to school? Even if you went back to class, you'd be so behind. And, you know, the ego of a, of a young kid going back, like, would you be made fun of? All those things, I'm sure, went through your mind. It was just easier to go get loaded.
1: And mostly what I cared about was fitting in with older kids. And I wish I would have cared about school, but I just didn't care at all. Like I Somehow there was a complete failure to consider the future. It was just about right now. These older kids, I already kind of had some credibility because hardly anyone goes to the Department of Corrections as a kid in my area had some credibility there, and the crazier the things I would do, yep, the, more, the more, right, and so I would do, I'll walk a mile for validation, and right. these guys would validate me, and so that's what I spent all my time chasing.
0: Were there moments when you were in jail at, you know, 13, 14, going, what am I doing? Like, how did I get here? You know, I just want to go home. I just want to be with my family.
1: No. And as weird as that might sound, I mean, maybe I'm just not remembering it, but one thing I remember crystal clearly, my parents never gave up on me and you were allowed to have visitation every weekend when I was locked up and they would come religiously every weekend. And um, there was one weekend they came and I was really into basketball when I was locked up and I'm playing basketball and I just appear to be having the time of my life out there on the court. And my dad looks at me and he says, it is remarkable to me how completely comfortable you become in the shittiest place imaginable. And that's just how it was for me. Like I was into basketball when I was in there. We loved watching cops on TV and we got to do that every Saturday night. If I could go two weeks without getting into a fight or getting into any trouble, I would get the highest level of privileges and I could stay up till 10 o'clock. And I never thought, what am I missing on the outside? I'm thinking about Cool. I get to stay up till 10 o'clock, which is weird, but that, I mean, that was my experience.
0: Yeah. No, no, no. That's, I mean, it's, that's interesting, a different experience for sure. And it's definitely going to change how you respond to the situations and how long you stay out. You, so what happened when you quote unquote graduated high school or left high school? You turned 18. Did you move out?
1: So I never graduated high school. I've literally never even completed a class ever. So I had like no high school credits. Um, And then I, there was a guy that I was locked up with that had gone on Grateful Dead tour. And I don't know anything about the Grateful Dead, but I also have nothing going on in my life. And he calls me one day and he says, Hey, I'm on Grateful Dead tour. This is the best thing ever. Do you want me to send you a plane ticket? I'm in Landover, Maryland. And what am I going to say? I've got nothing going on. Absolutely. I would love to do that. And sure enough, he sent me a plane ticket. I got on a plane. I went to the Capitol Center in Landover, Maryland, where the Grateful Dead were playing three nights. And he hands me a bag of perforated hits of LSD. There's like 500 hits of acid in here. And he told me to walk around the concourse and just say, doses. And so I start walking around the concourse, doses, doses. And I can't get three steps without somebody stopping me to purchase LSD. And everyone's paying in fives and ones because these hits are $5 a piece. And by the end of the night, I had this giant stack of money, which to me looked like a million dollars because it was all fives and ones. And I thought, oh my God. And then he takes me back to the hotel he's staying in. And there's all these people partying and we're listening to music. And um i never cared about the grateful dead music i grew to love it but to me it says a bunch of fat old men playing music from a long time ago and uh, but i was into drugs and girls and lack of responsibility and that was all available and i got super lucky no virtue on my part but i just happened to get brought on tour by a guy who was really plugged in in the lsd hierarchy and he introduced me to the right people and that set me up to where I didn't have to sleep in tents or campgrounds. We stayed in hotels, and we flew to shows. And with no responsibility, um, no one's ever telling me where I have to be, when I have to be there. I can literally do whatever I want and live pretty comfortably, economically. And I thought this is it. I don't ever want to do anything other than this ever. And a normal person would would probably factor in. Well, if I get caught with a ridiculously large amount of LSD. We have mandatory minimum sentencing guidelines. I'm going to go to prison for a really long time. That never crossed my mind. I was just like, here I am, and I plan to stay here forever.
0: You know what's interesting about that? So we were talking about this earlier. I, My boyfriend many moons ago was a deadhead and or whatever. And so I tried that persona on because why not? Everybody was doing a lot of drugs. And he had a 79 Volkswagen bus that we would go in and we'd go to the shows. And what's interesting about what you're talking about is like when I was using not in the festival festival world, not on like during shows and stuff, I definitely thought about whether or not I was going to get caught but when I it w- just when you mentioned that when I was at the festival when I was on the campgrounds when we were camping and doing all that it never occurred to me that anyone was going to get in trouble for drugs or like that we were doing something illegal because it was so prevalent like it was just so everyday normal and it was we were I mean I remember <laughs> you know you know hippy crack nitrous where they would take the balloons and like we were just doing them out in public it felt like a it felt like you know amsterdam like you just it was it was good to go so i can i i can feel that mentality because that was the mentality of the people in this in this world which is frankly what i loved about it
1: Yeah, and the DEA did a really big operation called Operation Dead End, where they tried for years and years to infiltrate the LSD hierarchy on Dead Tour, and I would see signs like there would be a a poster above the urinal in the bathroom that would say Operation Dead End, blah, 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 and try to warn you about the illegal dangers, and I would just look at those signs and think, oh, that's too bad for the losers that get caught up in something like this. Never, never. I might be getting caught up in something like
0: this. Right, right, How long were you on tour?
1: Until 1995 when Jerry Garcia died, so about five years. And then Jerry died and Grateful Dead tour was over.
0: Were they touring continuously that entire time?
1: So they would usually play about 55 shows a year. You'd have a spring tour, a summer tour, a fall tour, and a winter tour. And then on the downtime, you'd have a month or two between tours. I would go to San Francisco where all of my people were from.
0: And what what did your using look like? How much LSD were you doing? Were you just basically tripping 24-7?
1: No. Interestingly, I hated LSD because it gave me this weird... I love selling it, but I hated consuming it because it gave me this weird feeling of being out of control. So I would drink all the time. I would take pills all the time. If I got drunk enough and high enough on pills, I would smoke crack or meth. But the one thing I was going to stay away from was heroin.
0: Mm. Weren't we all? <laughs>
1: yeah. And I was, um, I, there were heroin addicts that I saw on Grateful Dead tour that just had it rough. Like these were the guys hitchhiking to shows, begging for change. And I also always associated heroin with needles and I've always been terrified of needles. I'm never, ever going to put a needle in my body. So I never, I just didn't have any interest in it. And, um, one night we're in New York city. We had just seen the Dead play seven nights at Madison square garden. And we're in this hotel, interestingly enough, called the Mayflower on central park West. And we are partying. We have a big suite and we had all had a really good week financially in New York. And a guy had some white powder in the hotel room. And I remember looking over and uh, I like to party. So, Hey, what, what is that? And he said, heroin. And I said, oof. I'm good. I don't mess around with heroin, and uh, and he he looked at me kind of curious. I said, I just don't mess with needles, man. I don't want to put a needle anywhere near me. And it's the East Coast, so it's China White. China White. And he says, you can snort it. And I said, oh, in that case, I party. Put out a line. Like he's just got this tiny little bump out there, and and the guy says, trust me, Chuck, this is all you need. And I snort this tiny little bump of China White. And, um, anyone who's ever done heroin knows what happens next, I get this overwhelming need to vomit like (laughs) right now,
0: right now, like, and over and over and over again.
1: Yeah. And I'm in a hotel room where a bunch of people are partying. So like the bathroom is not very sanitary at this point. And I remember going into the bathroom, puking everything up out of my stomach and then laying on the floor, puke, still dripping down my chin and thinking, I don't. Ever want to feel any way other than this ever again in my life? Like this is the answer to every question I've ever had, and I immediately fell in love with heroin.
0: Yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting. You know, the first time, the first time I did heroin, I overdosed, and it would, and, and that still didn't. You know, obviously, it still didn't stop me, and the the amount, like when you explain it right? Like how you're explaining it. The first thing that happened is you just vomit everything. And then like, how does that sound fun? Right? Like, how does that sound like partying? Like when you say it out loud, when you explain it, it doesn't make any sense. It sounds terrible. You start sweating, you start, you know, you're itchy. Like it doesn't make any sense, but it is, I think particularly for people like us who just want to be out of our skin, want to feel differently, that it just, it plugs that hole immediately. And the fact that you vomit and the fact that all these other things happen, which they do, seems it, it seems completely doable in the face of having that feeling.
1: Yeah. It's a perfectly acceptable trade-off because I'm not partying anymore. I'm not hanging out with any of my friends anymore. I'm laying on the bathroom floor, but I feel like there's a warm ball of honey that's exploding through my chest and every part of my body. And that's just an acceptable trade-off.
0: Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Ashley, your beloved host. When I'm not hosting the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast, I'm running the recruiting department at Lion Rock Recovery. We are all Always looking for amazing licensed mental health counselors, along with various other sales and operations positions that pop up from time to time. The Lion Rock culture is one of collaboration, support, and flexibility. Our employees work from home offices all over the country, utilizing technology to connect to one another. We are always hiring. So if you want to have the best job ever, check out our open positions and apply at www.lionrockrecovery.com/backslash/about/backslash/careers. You know, I used when I first got sober, I would talk about like, well, you know, partying, partying, this partying, and the truth is, is like at the end, I was not partying. Like there was not, it was not a party. It was me, uh, and and you. It. I think that's one of the things with heroin that changes things so drastically in your life is that you suddenly become. Alone, there's suddenly a like when you're doing other drugs. There's like a camaraderie to it. You can do coke with a group of people. You can, you know, there's all these. There's a camaraderie. Obviously, you can do heroin with a group of people, but it's not super common. But you're just not partying anymore. It's not a party. It's a it's a lifestyle. It's a way of life. It's what you do. And yeah, I I too was terrified of needles, and I just got drunk and high enough that I was willing to to try them because we didn't have China white. So, you what happens after that night how how do you launch your heroin career? So,
1: initially I'm on tour, so we're always in different cities and different places, and rarely does anyone come on tour selling heroin. We would usually have to go to the ghettos of the cities we were in to get it. So, in the beginning if it was around, I was absolutely going to do it. If not, no big deal. Like I'm not going into the ghetto in Philadelphia where I don't know anyone and I've never been here before to get it, but that passed quickly. And I wasn't, even though it wasn't a party, I wasn't alone either because I had a group of like five or six friends who we were all selling LSD together. We all loved heroin. And so oh, they
0: were doing heroin too. Yeah. Okay. okay.
1: So, so what it, it's not a party because we're all just sitting there burning holes in our shorts with our head falling into our laps, but we're together. Right. We're in the same okay. room.
0: Right, right, right. Okay.
1: So I had a little tribe and we would just go in, we would get in cabs in whatever city we were in and tell us to take us to the neighborhood where they sell drugs. And of course the cab drivers want the tip that comes with that. So I did that for a long time. And um, the one line I was never going to cross was needles. So- Getting back to the West Coast, they don't have China White, and snorting tar is brutal. Um, Smoking it isn't as bad, but also wasn't as effective in my experience. Um, But if you melt down tar and squirt a needle or like an oral syringe into your nose, you'll get the high. Um, And so I did that for a long time. And I actually went through a methadone program before I ever shot up. So I would... Do heroin all the time. To the
0: methadone, how did you decide to get to a methadone program?
1: So I knew just from hearing word on the street that if you were on methadone and you couldn't get any heroin, you wouldn't get sick. Mm. So like I had no intention or desire to get better or, or anything like that. And my first run on methadone was very short-lived. I just didn't want to be sick for a period of time. But methadone's sticky and it'll trap you. So I just did methadone for a little while, and I hated snorting heroin, but I saw my friends doing like one-tenth of the amount of heroin I would do, and they'd be falling out of their chairs, and I would barely be getting high. So finally, one night, I just stuck out my arm, and I said, I have to know what this is. Mm -hmm. Hit me. And like you, the first time I ever shot up, I overdosed. And I happened to be standing on concrete, oh, no. and I went out. So my head bounced off the pavement, split open. I had to go to the emergency room. They stitched my head back together, and I got more dope on the way home from the hospital the next day, because at that point, the choice is long gone. And I also discovered that, in fact, I would get way higher. And like, I never intentionally put a dose of heroin in my body that I believed would kill me. Like it was never like a suicide attempt right. Right. for me. yeah, it was just again, an acceptable outcome. If that's the way I go out, then exactly. at least I'll be happy on the way exactly. out the door
0: exactly. I totally relate to that. it was it was we were like, don't you care about dying or any of those things? I was like, I wasn't trying to die, but I wasn't trying not to die. It was just it was like if it ha- I was very aware that it might happen. And if it happened, then it was going to happen. And I wasn't going to put in place things to stop it from happening.
1: Yeah. And my experience with um, opiate addiction was pretty common of what I hear everyone else describe in that it was progressive. And so in the beginning, when Grateful Dead tour was over, I could make a call to San Francisco and say, I need 300,000 hits of acid. And they would send it to me just based on my word that I'm going to pay you when I sell this. But my habit kept progressing, kept progressing, and eventually I couldn't pay them anymore. And then that call turned into, not only are we never going to send you LSD again, we're going to kill you when we find you because we know you're not going to pay us. And, um, and now my LSD sales career is over. I have an insane, insatiable appetite for heroin and i have to like join society for the first time in my life get a haircut for the first time since i had been locked up i had really long hair at this point i have to get a real job which i had never had before and How i have no skills so this would be like in my early 20s okay 95 like so
0: this is 95 96 yeah okay so you and you have no skills you have no education Not- None. So what'd you get a job doing?
1: So I ended up getting a job as a courier. Okay. And I would go around to Bank of Americas and I would pick up the paper deposits. So I had no access to cash. Okay, okay. However, I did have the keys to the bank and I was in there when no one else was in there. And I quickly figured out that they don't have cameras in the break rooms of these banks. So I would steal TVs and DVD players out of the break rooms, and I would trade them to my heroin dealer while I was on my route. And that's primarily how I funded my habit during that time. And then I had a friend get arrested on something totally unrelated, but we all bought heroin from the same person. And uh, he tells me that when when he was in jail, some detectives came to talk to him about Pablo, the guy we bought dope from. And he said, you better not buy any dope from Pablo. And I'm thinking, oh my God, they're watching Pablo. I'm trading electronics out of a van every night to Pablo. I'm in some real hot water here. And I had some friends who had moved to Portland, Oregon. And now I do the my first geographic. And so Arizona is the problem. I'm going to get arrested if I stay in Arizona. I can't get away from heroin in Arizona. And I call my buddies and they say, Chuck, we don't even know where to get heroin. We drink pale ale, we're growing weed, like life is good. Come join us, get away from the madness. And I develop the plan that lots of opiate addicts will be able to relate to. I'm gonna buy enough dope to last me one Greyhound bus ride to Portland. <laughs> when I get there, I don't know where to get any heroin in Portland, I don't know anyone in it's Portland. Just gonna fall apart in Portland. And I'll just be forced to detox, but at least I won't have to do it on a Greyhound bus. But like all plans that I made during that period of my life, it sucked bad. And I didn't even get halfway to Portland before I ran out of dope. So now I'm sitting on a greyhound, sweating and dying, and I cannot wait for relief. And as soon as I get to Portland, I tell my buddies, You got to take me downtown. I'm dying. And of course, they say, Absolutely not. And um, I get back to their place and I immediately just set out on foot. I find a bus, I find my way downtown. And it turns out, they have heroin in Portland, Oregon also. Oh. And, <laughs> and my truth is, I could be on the moon, I'm going to find heroin. That's just what I do. And I ended up meeting a guy named Jimmy, and Jimmy was a street-level dealer in Portland, and Jimmy loved me because I bought a lot of heroin. And I became a shoplifter by trade. I would go to department stores, steal stuff, return to other department stores, and I would just call Jimmy every day. And um By now, I'm shooting dope. I'm not snorting it anymore. And one day, Jimmy says to me, Hey, Chuck, I'm moving to Los Angeles. Do you want my Connect and my customer list? And I thought about that for like zero seconds. (laughs) And I, I said, yes, I would, Jimmy. That sounds like a fantastic plan. And so now, all of a sudden, and Jimmy was marking up the heroin he was selling me significantly. And when I started buying dope from his connect, all of a sudden, I'm paying way less. And I can sell it to other kids for the same price as I was buying it for. And my Grateful Dead situation kind of recreated itself a little bit in that now I had the financial resources really to do as much heroin as I could do, which was around the clock all day, every day. And I'm running out of veins at this point in my life. And um, I went from, I won't ever put a needle in my body to there's nowhere that I won't put a needle in my body. And the only place I could really hit myself was my legs. And the only veins that were left in my legs were really small. So I started having these sores develop on my legs. And at first it would just be one here, one there, no big deal. But I have no ability to stop no matter what. And so the sores just keep getting bigger. And it's it's weird because they're not like abscesses. I've seen a lot of abscesses and that's yeah. not what this was. It literally just looked like a cut. Like I well, because abscesses fallen...
0: come out and sores right. go in.
1: Yeah. So it would just be it would look like I fell down on a sidewalk and skinned your knee like okay. that kind of sore. Okay. And they just are everywhere on my legs and so i now i take my first real stab at methadone as a way to stop using heroin and in oregon they had the oregon health plan where if you were homeless or of low income you could get state insurance and that would pay for your methadone but there was a really long waiting list if you did that so i get on the oregon health plan and i wait three months to get onto a methadone clinic. And now I have another plan that I've hatched. I'm going to get on methadone and just sell the heroin. If I'm not using it all, then I'll be able to sell enough to actually like rent an apartment, support myself. And, Are you um,
0: staying with the friends now?
1: No. So that I wore out my welcome pretty quickly there and really became mostly homeless. And I would stay at a place called the Joyce Hotel, which was gnarly. It was a $16 a night hotel in downtown Portland. And if you wanted to have a guest come in your room, it was an additional $7. And it's funny. I Googled this not that long ago. It actually shut down in 2016. But normally, if you Google a hotel, it'll have like a little line, nice amenities, gym, continental breakfast, whatever. If you Google the Joyce, it says something like, dormitory-style living supporting the downtown Portland homeless community. (laughs) and. That's what it was. So there was one bathroom per floor in the joints. You don't get a bathroom in your room. There's blood on every ceiling. You don't pull the comforter back no matter what. And it's nasty. It's what you'd expect for $16 in downtown Portland. And so mostly I would stay there. Does anyone clean it? I mean, I never saw anyone clean it. I'm sure they had people come in at some point, but it, it looks like it's never been cleaned And it may possibly have actually never been cleaned. They may just have gone in there and made the bed. I don't know. But So I would either stay there, or if it got really bad, which it did a lot, I would sit in the Burger King lobby on Burnside, order a water, and just sit there like a loser in shame. I know I'm not going to eat, I'm not going to pay you for anything, but I also have nowhere to go. And I would sit there and wait for the sun to come up and start the hustle all over again. But so I'm I've got these sores everywhere and I'm finally my turn comes to get into the methadone program. And I go there and it was kinda crazy. The first time I went there, I'm standing in line and there's this man in front of me in a wheelchair and I we start talking, you know, we're sitting there waiting and I asked him, Why are you in this wheelchair? What happened to you? And he proceeds to tell me that he's shooting heroin into his penis they had to. he got an infection, they had to amputate his penis, and he, as a result, was paralyzed from the waist down for the rest of his life. And I'm thinking, oh my God, where? Now I'm thinking, where am I? Who are these people? Who is this company that I'm keeping here? But I'm desperate and I'm sick, so I, I finally get in and the nurses ask me to show them my tracks and I'm really ashamed of my legs, so I try to show them the old tracks on my arms and they know better. And they tell me to show them my track. So I pull up my pant legs, not because I want to, just because I want to get dosed and their jaws hit the floor and they say, oh my God, you need to go to the emergency room right now. And they had like a really distinct urgency about them. They said, don't stop and get a cup of coffee. Don't go get a pack of cigarettes. You need to go to the emergency room right now. And so I go to the ER and again, I'm just you, full of shame.
0: Were you, were you like, okay,
1: uh-oh, I'm scared? Not so much scared. I'm like scared that I'm going to get dope sick. And if I don't get back to the methadone clinic before they close, I'm in trouble. But I'm ashamed because I'm asking for medical services. And I know that the majority of people in the hospital are not there from self-inflicted drug wounds, but I am. Um, but they're not going to admit me until this doctor writes a clearance letter. So I see the doctor And he tells me that the veins that are left in my legs are so small that even when the needle registers, some of the poison is missing and it's eating its way through my tissue wall. And what's going to happen is that tissue wall is going to break. I'll take two or three breaths and fall over and die from toxic blood poisoning. And so my question when they told me that was, how long do I have? Are we talking tomorrow, next week, like Give me a time frame to work with here because now it's hours before I finally got back to see the doctor. So now I know the clinic's closed and I know what I have to do. And the doctor tells me, we can't tell you when it's going to happen. We can just tell you this is what's going to happen if you continue to use. And armed with that information, I went and did the biggest shot of heroin I could do because that's the only way I knew how to handle stuff like that. And um,
0: did they offer any like... I don't know, like services for you. Like, did they clean it? Did they try? I mean, were they trying to patch it up, or they just like, yeah, you're going to die?
1: So yeah, they did do some wound care, and they didn't just say you're going to die, but they did say if you continue to do this, this will be the result. And they gave me the clearance letter for the methadone clinic, and I was so far gone that I made it back to the methadone clinic, they put me on the program, but they require you to pass drug tests in order to keep getting state-assisted methadone, and I just couldn't do it. So that was that, and then I did another geographic, because now Portland was the problem, And it was way better when I was in Arizona because I was only shooting up in my arms. My legs weren't all infected. And my parents are just forever troopers. And they'll help me if they believe I'm taking some kind of action to try to improve my life. So I moved back in with them. I get a job um, at a warehouse and get on the methadone clinic in Phoenix, but they have the same rules. Even when you're paying for it, if you don't pass the drug test, then they have to keep your dose below a certain level for liability reasons. And so now I'm fully addicted to methadone. And if I don't have my methadone, there's, I'm not moving. And I'm addicted to heroin and alcohol at the same time. So it got pretty gnarly there. And, um, and my life just kind of spiraled from that point. Like I just, there were some brief periods of time where I would like get inspired to try to get weekend take-home doses. So I didn't have to go to the clinic at four in the morning on Saturday and I would do well for a month and everyone in my life would be like, Oh my God, you are holding down a job. You seem to be doing so well. And that's because I was just on methadone, but I could never pull that off. And my parents only have so much tolerance. Like I'm a mess. When I'm actively drinking, doing dope, and they have to drive me to the methadone clinic in the morning, and so then I become homeless in Phoenix, and that's that's a tough draw. Like Phoenix is not a hospitable place for the homeless. It's either hot or it's cold, but it's rarely anything in between. There's not a lot of services. Public transportation sucks, and um, so
0: I got loaded. I got loaded in Phoenix, and it is not. Was it I wanna say Roosevelt down down I don't they there was a homeless shelter down there and then also a trailer park and Cass. I remember
1: they have Central Arizona shelter services downtown.
0: Yeah. Yeah it was not That's, not a nice yeah, place.
1: Pretty gnarly. No. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it was so um, scary. Yeah. So how yeah. long were you homeless there?
1: So most of the time, but this went on for a couple of years. And then I had a friend who, whose father owned a home and he was like a hardcore crack addict, but he was able to live in his father's home. So I lived in that home with him and lots of times the power would be off and there was no furniture, but it was four walls and a roof and we were just insane drug addicts living in this house. My physical health is spiraling
0: and um,
1: the Did you wounds, have
0: all... I was going to say, so you, you don't have any veins left. What are you... Are you just doing muscle shots now?
1: Mainly muscle shots. And I started smoking it at that point okay. just okay. because you just, that was, was, was the enough. only way to get yeah. it in my body. Yeah, and I would still—I was so desperate to have a good intravenous shot that sometimes I'd spend an hour trying to find a vein, and then finally just give up and snort the liquid, and and then I'd smoke it for a few days and try again. So it kind of went like that, pretty glamorous.
0: (laughs) Oh yeah, yes, very. I had a my, the the guy who gave me my first first shot, who was my boyfriend, he was out of veins, and so he taught me using muscle shots so like i literally learned how to use heroin from someone who didn't have so like that was how i learned about it and the things i saw with him trying to do that and what that looked like and the desperation and you know that wasn't that that wasn't my story because i can't for me like i can't last very long like you guys are amazingly resilient and able to like take the show on the road like i am a i am dead in the water like i don't go anywhere i can't i can't sell anything i'm not capable of making any sort of financial arrangements for myself i just sort of like fall into a period of like unable to do anything it's it's very sad and um not doesn't lend itself to being a long term user because i just i constantly end up in the hospital constantly it's just like i decide to use for 2 days boom hospital boom hospital it's like it's just, I, I I guess I'm just not very good at it when it comes right down to it is I just can't, can't keep it going for very long.
1: It's a full-time job. And I have to give a quick shout out to the harm reduction folks that are out there because the only reason that I don't have HIV or hep C is because there was a group of loving women that ran a needle exchange in Portland and they made sure I never went without a clean rig. And they also taught me how to do muscle shots with alcohol before, antibiotic cream after, And that probably saved me from untold abscesses. So thank God for those women.
0: Yeah. It's, uh, I saw a bunch of syringe uh, disposals. I was just in San Francisco and I saw these big syringe disposals and um, downtown and where the homeless population was. And, you know, it's on the one hand, I I feel like if you don't have experience with that, why you would give people, you know, we, we used to go to the needle exchange and get like a whole new box. And, the thing about the needle exchange, anybody who, whoever did this will understand this. Why was it that when we got our new rigs, we didn't, like, when we got to the end, then we would reuse the last ones a gazillion times before we would get the new ones. But I could never pace myself with the new ones. Like, every time I got through the box, it was like, oh, we're through the box. I'm going to reuse these last five ones until they fall apart. And... But like it, you get the new ones and you don't, I, there's no like, it, it was so much a part of my being. Like I'm completely incapable of pacing myself or looking forward, making decisions, even in the drug use, making decisions that make sense for what I want to do. Not even like practical life skills, just like not even using in a way that's practical for me.
1: Yeah. And for me, these ladies were so sweet and I was so alone and just in the wind when I was out there. I couldn't wait to go back and see them again because that was really the only time that anyone treated me like a human being during that time in my life. And I'm, I'll, I'll be grateful to those women for as long as I live. They were just incredible. And they would give me the box, and they would give me the biohazard disposal kit, and they just never judged me. And the reality is, I was going to shoot dope. Whether they were there or not, I was going to shoot dope. And they were just the difference between more resources having to be used to treat Hep C yeah. or yeah. HIV or whatever else I was going to catch, because I was putting the dope in my body. I had no choice about that.
0: Yeah, yeah. How did you get from that to did you go inpatient?
1: So what ended up happening for me when I was living in that crazy house oh, um, yeah. right, right, in right. Phoenix, I end up getting one last like mercy charitable action from my parents and they met me at the Methadone clinic and they I met them there and they they had called me and they told me they wanted to talk to me. And I was like, okay, well, this is one place I know that I'll be, that you can be. And I show up at the methadone clinic and they're there and they want to talk to me. So I tell them, I'm going to go in, get my dose, and then I'll come back and listen to whatever you guys have to say. And I don't know what they want to say, but they're there. So they say to me, you can go in there and get your dose if you want. And when you come back out, we'll be gone. And it'll be the hardest thing that we ever have to do in our lives because we know we're not going to see you alive again. I'm down to about 120 pounds at this time. And I'm over six feet tall, so I'm about 185, 190 pounds now. There's I'm a kind of a weird, whitish, yellow color. And um, I say to them, well, I have to get my dose. Like I, I don't have any choice about that, but I'll come back and listen. And they say, actually, you don't. And I I say to them, if I don't take my dose of methadone, I'll die. And they say, actually, we looked it up on the internet, and you'll wish you were dead, but you won't actually die. And we know a place that can help you, and we're willing to take you there. And I had been hustling for so long, and the returns were so low at this point. Like it's not about getting high anymore; it's about getting well, as you well know. And um, and there's just really no fight left in the dog at this point. I'm I am broken mentally, physically. There was never any spiritual stuff happening anyway. I'm just a broken shell of a human, and they're offering help. Well, they didn't do a ton of research. They just found community bridges downtown, and it was called Lark at the time. And it, Lark doesn't look that bad on the outside, but once you get on the inside, it's pretty sketchy. And then when the doors close behind you and there's no handles for you to get back out, it's like, uh, oh, my God. So I go into Lark, and, um, and it, what ended up happening is when they did do the research they did, they found this place called Valley Hope which is where I ended up going to treatment, but Valley Hope wouldn't accept me until I did a physical detox because my methadone dose was too high. So I go into Lark, I do my six days there and the first day was brutal, but then they medicate you yeah, yeah. and I'm yeah. addicted to alcohol, benzos and heroin. So I get a lot of medication. I'm on phenobarbital and Subutech and I'm quite comfortable. And, um, but then there was a two day window between my last day at Lark and the bed opening at Valley Hope My parents lived way out on a one side of town where I didn't really know anyone and public transit sucks in Phoenix. And I had no wallet, no keys, no nothing, no money. And um, so they locked me up in the guest bedroom in their house. And for two days, I just kicked like a dog. And I remember thinking, I will never allow myself to feel this way ever again. This is so unbelievably bad. And then I get to Valley Hope and I'm not really sure why they did this. I don't think they would today, but they put me back on a Suboxone taper that was supposed to last eight days. And I'm perfectly fine day one through seven and a half. And then I get to the last day and I have no more Suboxone in my system. And the the just intense withdrawal sets in again. And I end up I had a roommate who had a car in Valley Hope. And I said to him one night, Randy, you look uncomfortable. And I'm certainly uncomfortable. And I have an easy fix where we could both be very comfortable. And they would let us leave for two hours to go to a meeting, is why they were doing it. And so I would have Randy take me to this guy's house that sold Percocet. So I took Percocet the whole time I was in Valley Hope. When I got out of Valley Hope, my parents owned a condo. And um, they let me live in it as long as I got a sober roommate, which turned into a total disaster. But so I was somewhat stable for a minute and I got right back on methadone as soon as I got out because I knew at this point, medically assisted sobriety is as good as it's ever gonna get for me. But I have a sober roommate and he's eventually gonna come home. So that was pretty short lived. Um, He ends up calling my parents like a month after he moved in and said, I will be moving out. I really appreciate the opportunity. And my parents said, Should we be worried about Chuck? And he said, I'm gonna let you talk to him about that, but I'm gonna go. And I, you know, I was just nodded out and ridiculous all the time. And then I ended up having an intervention staged. And all these people, some of whom you know from the program, came over. They all sat around the kitchen table and they all went around and told me how much they loved me and that I was throwing my life away and and wanted to give me another chance and offered to help me get into Crossroads. And I said, that's cute. I appreciate the effort. But I'm in my mind, I know I'm so far gone. I'm totally addicted to methadone and have been for years and years at this point that I can't do that. And so now I'm just back in the wind for another two years. And I have these sores never went away. And it ended up, the damage I did was permanent. It's never going away. And what happened is my, my veins cannot carry white blood cells to heal a wound. So if I get any kind of break of the skin of my lower extremities, it turns into a massive infection. It did, the cellulitis infection. I end up in the hospital and they draw two lines on my legs. My legs swelled up like two or three times its normal size, bright red. And they draw lines across my thighs on both of my legs.
0: My parents end up here.
1: Yeah. And I had never seen my father cry in my life ever. Even when his own mother died, he had never cried that I saw. And they came to the hospital and they went out in the hallway with the doctor and the doctor told them, you know, we drawn this line, we're going to put a pick line in his heart, run some really powerful antibiotics. And- Hopefully, it kills the infection. If not, we have to take his legs above the knee, which is a gnarly amputation. Any amputation is gnarly, but above the knee is really gnarly. And so I'm in the hospital for a week. I end up being in a wheelchair for a long time when I got out. They had to have the therapist come teach me how to walk on crutches, all that good stuff. And then out of just utter hopelessness and desperation, I make my way to Alcoholics Anonymous in 2009 and draw my first sober breath. Sober, medically assisted. And I start to hear all the stuff like medical assisted sobriety at that time was absolutely stigmatized, taboo. And I heard all the things. You're not really sober if you're on methadone or Suboxone. If you really trust God, you'll go through this detox. You're never going to feel like you're one of us You're always going to be separate on the outside looking in. And I'm listening to all this, and I make up my mind, I'm never going to tell another human being that I'm on this. And I end up, they got me to the point where the wound closed, and they didn't have to amputate my legs, but they did have to surgically repair both of them. In uh, 2011, I had the first one done, in 2013, I had the second one done. So I'm... Starting in 2009, I'm a full-blown member of Alcoholics Anonymous with a secret. And I'm, I have a home group. I'm sponsoring guys. I'm speaking at some pretty big meetings, like doing everything I know to do, everything that the elders in the rooms are telling me. I just can't tell them my secret. And for about five years, it's insane how much my life turned around. Even on medical assistance, I got a job like a real job where I was actually able to pay some bills. I bought my first home. I married this incredible woman who was way out of my pay grade. Uh, But somehow, it took like six months to convince her to have coffee with me. But I eventually did, And, uh, and we ended up getting married. I had had a daughter when I was out on my last run between 2007 and 2009. And I wasn't allowed to see her. I, I had, I could go see her if my parents were with me on weekends, and I just never could make it over to my parents to take me over there. I ended up getting full custody of my daughter. My sponsor tells me the only reason you don't have a college degree is fear. Enroll in classes. I enroll in classes and while working get a bachelor's degree, the guy who never even went to high school. Um, and life is like really, really good. And that was all possible. But I had to hang on to the secret the whole time that they switched me when I had my first surgery from methadone to suboxone. And that made it way easier because when you're on methadone, or at least when I was on methadone, I had to go to a physical location every morning and drink the dose out of a cup, where when I was prescribed suboxone coming out of surgeries... I only had to go to the doctor once every three months, and he would give me a prescription for pills. And there was nothing mind-altering about it. And I never abused it because I was way too afraid that I would run out before my, you know, like you have to pace it. And I was also fully engaged in 12-step recovery.
0: Now, did your wife know?
1: No. Okay. I mean, when I say a secret, no one. Not my parents, daughter, wife, sponsor, no one. Okay. This was the secret that I could not let anyone know about because I couldn't. I Now I have this beautiful life and it's getting yeah. more and more beautiful every yeah. year and I'm just not willing to risk it. Yeah. And I know and my personal experience, they're higher and higher. Mm-hmm. And I, I never, ever will forget those two days between Community Bridges and Valley Hope. I'll never forget the day they cut off the Suboxone and how I just couldn't even make it to group, just dying. And in my mind, There's a 100% chance I will relapse if I'm not on medical assistance. And to relapse now means a daughter growing up without a father, wife losing her husband, parents losing the son they've gotten back after all these tragic years, way too much on the line. So that lasted almost five years. And you could, you could look at the situation and it would be a fair criticism to say, well, how effective can medically assisted sobriety really be because you ended up getting loaded again? But I'm telling you, and I believe this to the fiber of my being, my relapse had nothing to do with medical assistance.
0: Probably had to do it with was, the
1: secret. I don't even, I really don't even think it had to do with a secret because once I got the, the secret didn't help. And I hope. If anything, I can share that you don't have to keep that secret and I'll get to that in the next phase of my sobriety. But for me, once I got it prescribed by a doctor, the only difference between me and anyone else was I put a little tablet under my tongue before I left the house in the morning. Right, like it, But what did happen is I started to make really good money and I owned a home and I had a nice German luxury car and like life had gotten really good and I slowly started to peel away all of the things. like I hear a lot from the people I follow, don't let your AA life get in the way of, or don't let the life AA gave you get in the way of your AA life. And I did that. So I was taking meetings into the jail every weekend. I was doing a weekly book study. All of that, I started to peel away. And um, I ended up winning a President's Club award at the company that I worked for. And they had a trip for everyone who won the President's Club to Vegas. So I go on this trip, zero intention of drinking, none at all. I'm not nearly as engaged in the program, but still like all my friends, my wife, everyone around me is in the program. And I buy a bottle of Dasani water when I get to Vegas. I'm staying at the Mandalay. It's a nice suite. And I get into the room and there's a mini bar in my room. And I have a bottle of Dasani water, and I want to keep it cold. So I open the minibar. I take two bottles of champagne out of the minibar. I don't even like champagne. I just put them up on the shelf, put the water where the champagne was, and then I get a phone call. And it's the front desk. And I say, sir, are you aware that you just took $3,000 worth of champagne out of the minibar? And I was like, Oh my God. No, I was not aware of that, but don't worry about it. I didn't open the champagne. I just needed to make room for a bottle of water. And they said, okay, well then in that case, we only have to charge you the $50 restocking fee. Now, I have no idea why this question popped into my mind because it has nothing to do with anything. But I immediately thought to myself and asked, do I have to pay that restocking fee whether I drink anything or not? And they say, unfortunately, you do. And I don't like champagne, but I looked back over to the bar and I saw vodka, Grey Goose vodka. And the best mental defense that I could come up with in that moment was don't think about it or you won't drink it. And it was just that simple. Boom. Lid comes off the vodka, pour it down the hatch. I get that immediate. <sighs> okay. No one died. That actually felt kind of good. Mm-hmm. And then I hatched one of my classic plans now i'm going to have an arizona sobriety date and an international sobriety date oh man because that's good. it's great right that's and i've good. seen the commercials what happens in vegas stays in vegas oh my god none of these people know me so good like, these are all work friends so <laughs> they don't know any of my aa friends and um and I'm able to hold that together for a little while. And that weekend I just drank like crazy and we partied.
0: Also the fact that you that you decided that Vegas was international. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: That's kind of amazing yeah. too. Like yeah. suddenly Vegas is an international surprise. Yeah. I mean, it is
1: like a forty five minute plane, right? <laughs> So,
0: oh, that's so good. Okay. So, yeah. you've now have two sobriety dates and you drank. I'm assuming you drank the rest of the time in Vegas.
1: So, we just ripped it up in Vegas and yeah. I had a blast. Like, I remembered, oh man, alcohol takes away all of my inhib- inhibitions. If I do some cocaine while drinking, now I can be free of inhibition and stay awake. This is a lot of fun, but I have a bunch of responsibilities. So, I'm going to do this to the end of the weekend and then it'll all be over until the next time there's a trip out of town by myself. Right. And I hold that together for a little while. And um, in the beginning, I'm only going to drink in bars. and Or first, only if I'm out of town, but then I just wasn't out of town often enough. So now I'm only going to drink if I'm in bars. Okay. And then more time goes by, probably like a year and a half, you would have really had no idea. Like life just seemed normal other than the fact that I'm in bars. But then eventually I'm like, I'm paying $12 for a double vodka seven. I could buy the whole bottle for $23 and have a hundred drinks. And so now I just go buy the bottle. I make the drinks while I'm sitting in the car and I just drink in the car. And it's crazy to me because I had so much experience detoxing from heroin and opiates. I never in a million years would have thought alcohol Could do the same thing to me. Never, ever, ever until it did. And I'm on a, in 2015, me and Nicole go on a trip to New Orleans with my parents. And my father, who owned a propane company, was being celebrated and sworn in as the chairman of the National Propane Gas Association, which is a really big deal in their industry. And so all the company owners from around the country fly in. It's this big thing. And I'm much like my bus trip to Portland. This is where I'm going to stop drinking every day. And I'm a couple years now into drinking every day. And so I get to New Orleans, Nicole or my parents or my daughter, none of them have any idea that I've ever drank. And I've been drinking all day, every day now at this point. And the first morning I wake up and I'm just sweating. My hands are shaky. And I know. Oh my God, it's on me. And you would think, and we're staying at this really nice hotel in the French Quarter, which is where Bourbon Street is. So you're thinking you can just drink anytime you want on Bourbon Street. Not true. They close the bars on Bourbon Street at about four in the morning. They wash all the piss and puke off the sidewalk. And then once people are awake and ready to drink again at about 11, they roll up the shutters and now you can drink in the streets again. Well, it's six in the morning. What am I going to do? And I make up some excuse that I'm going to go get beignets for Amelia and Nicole. And I'm still, I have no idea that they closed the bars. So I'm thinking I'm just going to run down, slam down a couple hurricanes and get back up to the rooms. And to my horror, all the bars are closed. Oh my gosh. But they have this little area called Jackson Square mm-hmm. right outside the French Quarter. And there's kind of an unspoken deal between the homeless and the police in New Orleans, or at least there was in 2015 when we were there, that you stay over here. Don't bother the tourists in the French Quarter, and we'll let you conduct your life as homeless people without bothering you. So I went into a CVS, and I bought a bottle of New Amsterdam vodka, a plastic bottle, and a bottle of Sprite. And I went and sat with the homeless guys in Jackson Square, pounding down this vodka and Sprite, and went back to the hotel room. And at that moment, I knew this is on me the same way that heroin has been on me for my whole life, and there's just no walking away now. Now I'm in. What am I going to do? And, um, and that continued until January of 2018. And you, you can ask yourself, well, how is that possible? How would you be drinking around the clock every day if you live with someone who's not only sober, but sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Like, How would she ever not know that? And the answer to that is, one, she didn't want to know that. Like that was a painful thing for her to have to come to terms with if it would have been true. And two, I will go to any lengths to protect my ability to not get sick. And so I ate a lot of garlic and hummus. I brushed my teeth a lot. I chewed a lot of gum. I made excuses to be gone or asleep all the time. And I got caught all the time. And every time I would get caught, I would tell her, okay, this is a one-time thing. I'm going back to AA. And Oh,
0: she knew you were relapsing.
1: Yeah, after a while.
0: Okay, okay.
1: For a few years, I was able to keep it from her. And then like every six months, I would just overshoot the mark so bad that there's no way to lie to her anymore. Got it, okay. And, um, And so I'm familiar with AA because I had been really involved in the program for five years. And then now I'll go to meetings so I can figure out who's chairing, what's the topic. I'll make sure it's one that one of her friends is in. And then when I get home and she says- God, why does your vape make you smell like vodka? I can say vodka. Are you kidding me? I was just at the meeting. Ashley was chairing. The topic was willingness. Mm-hmm. Call your friend; they'll tell you. And so I kind of gaslighting her into believing, you know, that I'm really giving it a shot. And then one day in January of 2018, she has this, this weird feeling that something's wrong. And she's at work, and I'm at home, which means I'm drinking, and. I had had a car for five years that Nicole had never driven. She'd never, ever had the key to this car, ever. And that was because I kept the drugs and alcohol in the trunk. She also never knew that I had been on Suboxone this whole time. And she gets this feeling that something's wrong. She comes home. And I usually would always hide the key, but I knew there was going to be a long enough period of time for me to take a shower and be back out and drinking again before she got home. But she had decided to come home unannounced. And my key's sitting there. I'm in the shower. So she goes out, and sh- there had been a couple times where I had like a weed pen in the trunk, and I'd just snuck out, to take a couple hits real quick. and um so she and she'd come out and ask me, "What are you doing in the trunk?" Nothing It'd be offended that she would even ask. So she knew the trunk was a trouble zone. And she gets the key. She opens the trunk, and there is a giant bottle of vodka, a bottle of suboxone. She comes back into the bedroom. I get out of the shower, and she's standing there with a bottle of vodka in one hand, the bottle of Suboxone in the other, and she tells me, you have to go to treatment or this marriage is over. And I'm like, oh my God, this is really sketchy. So she goes into the kitchen to dump the bottle of vodka down the sink and leaves the bottle of pills on the bed. Now, I know I can easily go get another bottle of vodka, But the pills have to come from the pharmacy. So I immediately put the pills in my pocket. I walk back into the kitchen, tell her, well, what what are you thinking about as far as treatment goes? And she's like, oh, this, that. I said, okay, let me go smoke a cigarette. I need to think about this. And I just immediately jumped in my car, drove to a hotel, checked in, and started to come to terms with the fact that I am going to voluntarily surrender a family because there's no way. I can go to treatment. They're not going to let me drink or take Suboxone in treatment, and I can't live without either. I need both in order to sustain life. And I stayed in that hotel for three days, and um, and I just really sat there, TV on really low volume, like coming to terms with the fact that my family is gone. What am I going to do? I have no idea. And then finally, on the third day, Nicole left me a voicemail said something about the cat. She said, I need to go stay with my dad. This house is just making me so sad. If you come home, don't feed the cat. Like she had put out enough food for the cat or whatever. And now I'm thinking, oh, well, I pay the mortgage on this house. Damn it. Why in the hell am I staying in a hotel room? I'll do what I want to do. In reality, I just knew she was gone. Right. So I go back and she ends up coming home and we have a talk and I I tell her like treatment's unavailable as an option for me. And she asked me if I would be willing to give Alcoholics Anonymous one more shot. And I say yes. And I still know I'm not going there to get sober. I'm going there because I'm voluntarily surrendering a family and I need to at least be able to say that I tried at least say that I tried. And I go to this little meeting hall that's on the far east side of town. And I see the same people that I'd always seen whenever I'm finding out who's chairing. And But this time it's odd to them that I'm still there 10 minutes into the meeting. And this guy, Pat, who never says anything during the meeting, he's just like a real strong, silent type, never says a word. I stay for the whole meeting. I'm walking out that night and Pat stops me. And he says, Chuck, you're suffering. I can see in your eyes that you are suffering. You don't have to suffer like this. I promise there's a way out. And I don't know what it was. I just, I was desperate. I was willing to grasp at anything. And Pat was there. And he said, I want you to meet me tomorrow night at this men's stag meeting. It's a closed men's stag meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, what am I going to close? closed men stag meeting with Alcoholics Anonymous? Sounds about as appealing to me as getting hit with a fly swatter. Like there's, I'm just, there's nothing I want there. But Pat asked me to do it and he took the time to stop me and care. And so I agreed to meet him there and I knew the stigma hasn't gone anywhere. Like there's still a great deal of stigma around Opiates and medically assisted treatment, and I'm already fully entrenched. Like I'm on a daily dose of Suboxone. And I just kind of throw myself on the mercy of this group, which looking back, I'm not really sure why I was willing to do that. But this meeting had a group of really solid old timers that had been in Alcoholics Anonymous forever. There was no nice cars in the parking lot, but these guys were all long term members of AA who were serious about the program. And I tell them, here I am that he was on methadone and they, back in those days, it wasn't about keeping you on it forever. Like they wanted to get people off of it. So they would mix it with orange juice. And finally he gets to the end and the nurses tell him, Paul, you can come forever. You can keep coming and paying us for as long as you want, but there hasn't been any methadone in your orange juice for over a month. So it's really a waste of your money to be here. And I remembered that. I had heard it years earlier, but it always stuck with me. And I said to Nicole, what if we talk to my doctor and see if we can organize a blind detox? Because I know my truth. When I get to close to zero, I'm going to leave. You're going to lose me. It's a guarantee. It's what's always happened. It's what always will happen. And so we agreed together to go on this journey of a blind detox And Nicole was such a champion about this. This is not an easy task, right? Because not only does she have to go through the legwork, by the end, suboxone pills come in two milligram, four milligram, or eight milligram pills. By the end, I'm getting this two milligram pill. She's sitting there like a cocaine dealer with a razor blade and a mirror, cutting this two milligram pill into 16 separate doses. So I'm getting a fraction of a milligram per dose. And she is then crushing up a bunch of vitamin C tablets, and so she just gives me this pile of powder that tastes like vitamin C to me, and obviously I can't tell the small differences in the amount of Suboxone that's still in the pill. And I did tell her at one point, you can't tell me for a while when this is over. Like I'm remembering Paul's story, and I never let up on Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm just full steam ahead. I'm pretty much every night going to meetings, just getting fully involved again. And one time, I got all the way down to zero. I didn't know this until a long time later, but this is how hard it was for Nicole. There was one time where I got all the way down to zero, and I didn't sleep for four nights And I'm having to work during this whole time, which is a whole nother nightmare, but she's watching me pacing in the garage on the fifth night thinking he's going to die if he tries to drive to work on five nights of no sleep. And I still think I just have such a small dose of Suboxone left that it's not enough to keep me well anymore, but like, we're in it now, I'm going to fight. And she was like, so scared that she started putting a little bit more back in there and then brought me back down again. And then finally, one day, which I will never ever forget as long as I live, we're in the living room in our house, and she says, I need to talk to you. I have no idea what she's talking about. It's a perfectly normal day like any other day. And she says the same thing that Paul's methadone told him all those years ago. You can keep taking this vitamin C for as long as you want. There's nothing harmful about vitamin C. In fact, it's beneficial in many ways. But it's been weeks since there's been any Suboxone in your dose. And I literally involuntarily hit my knees in the floor, in the living room floor, and just wept. I couldn't believe it. The impossible had happened. What was never, ever going to happen had happened. And I knew I was free. And I decided right then and there that I'm going to be a pretty tireless advocate for people who are in need of medical assistance. And the reality, in my experience, is most people are like me. Like, if you came up to me today and you said, hey, Chuck, I'm considering either going through a six-day detox from heroin or entering into a lifetime contract with methadone or suboxone, I would say, write it out, man. It's six days. It's not that bad. I'll, I'll walk with you. But a lot of people come to the rooms and they're already on it. And if that's your case and you hear the message, you're never going to be one of us, you're probably never going to be one of us. And if you hear, if you really trusted God, you're going to probably start to question, well, do I trust God? Am I fit to serve God? So it's really important to me to share the message that if you're on methadone or suboxone and you're suffering and you can't stop taking it, and whether you're taking any other drugs or not, you are so welcome in Alcoholics Anonymous. And why Alcoholics Anonymous? There's Cocaine Anonymous. There's Heroin Anonymous. And I go to meetings in both of those fellowships. The reason Alcoholics Anonymous specifically is so important to me is if you walked up to me today and you said, hey, Chuck, I have a syringe full of really good cocaine and heroin. The syringe has never been used. You can have it for free. Here you go. I would say, Ashley, that's preposterous. Why would I do this? Look at this beautiful life that I have, why would I throw it away over a syringe full of poison? That's what I would say today. However, if you put four vodka OJs and a two milligram Xanax in me and ask me the same question, I'm going to have an entirely different reaction. And for me, I've never been to a team builder at work where we go to someone's basement and shoot heroin together. But every team builder I go to at work comes with drink tickets. And my disease is cunning, it's baffling, it's powerful, it's going to sneak in any way it possibly can. So I have to be diligent not only to never put drugs in my body again, but that has to start with alcohol because that's on every corner and that's socially acceptable. So to me, I need people to know you are so welcome in Alcoholics Anonymous. If you come here medically assisted, if you want to stay on medical assistance, that's between you and your doctor. I'm here to love you and lift you up. If you want to get off medical assistance, that's something I can help you with. Let's walk through it together. Either way, I'm going to love you and lift you up. And if there are people who tell you that you're not welcome here, which there are. There, I mean, there are people that have that opinion, as you know. I am the first to say, fuck those people like you're part of us now you're a member of our tribe now and you are so welcome here
0: it's so important to have this message out there chuck and uh, i mean your story gives me chills you know no also you know knowing nicole as i do your wife and um and everything that you guys have been through and i i can't imagine Any of that or what, you know, it. I think it's also a testament to her sobriety and then your recovery together that you've been able to stay married through that, because that would be a real challenge. And that means that you guys were able to work through problems that many couples probably wouldn't be able to work through. That takes hard work. It takes honesty, vulnerability, you trusting her. I mean, there's so much just aside from like the drug piece of it, like there's so much team building that you guys had to do, taking down, you know, repairing repairing trust that probably it, it was eroded completely from years of this, and you know the, the it's something I've talked about. Dak, my husband and I did a uh, podcast together, and one of the things that we talked about was that this idea that we un, one of the the valuable things about both of us being in recovery right there's a lot of dangers there's a lot of liabilities from both of us being in recovery but one of the valuable things about it is that we get it like we we get it we get it and so with every fiber of my being you know i if dak relapsed Despite all of the pain, I also know what it means to be an. I know what it means to to need that, and so I think there's this value of having someone who gets it, just gets it, on your team, in your corner, and uh, just so so amazing that you guys were able to do that, and and that you were able to trust someone like to administer your Spoxin and to do that experiment. You know, that I'm sure that was terrifying.
1: Yeah, they say a lot in the rooms that you have to turn your will in your life over to a higher power, right? And um, for me, <laughs> it was Nicole. Way, way before I was willing to turn my life over to any kind of spiritual higher power, I had to turn it over to Nicole because mm-hmm. no one, no one ever put their hands on my bottle of Suboxone, ever. And to turn that over to her, and th- my truth is, I don't deserve what she did. Like, she went so far above and beyond the call of duty. It's insane, and I don't deserve it. But I will spend the rest of my life trying to honor her willingness to walk through that, because I just wouldn't be here today if not for that. And we get to live a remarkable life today. Like you said earlier, luck is better than being good. And I'm just a really, really lucky human being. And yeah, we have a incredible marriage today where... My belief, personally, is there is absolutely nothing I've seen that you can tear down drinking and using that can't be rebuilt in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's been my experience, and our marriage is certainly part of that. The trust that needed to be rebuilt was significant, but Alcoholics Anonymous gave us the tools to do that. And today, we have a marriage that's rooted in AA, and our daughter gets to grow up in a healthy, happy environment, which is pretty important right now because we're in the house all the
0: time. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. It's like, we better, we better like each other. I mean, that's been something I'm seeing like couples that don't like each other and now are now stuck in home in, you know, house together, you know, with the Suboxone, there are meetings. I, I believe there are meetings for people who are on Suboxone, 12 step meetings, MAT meetings. Is that, do you know anything about that? No. No, okay. Um
1: the only research I did was I just asked Nicole if she could find anyone who successfully detoxed in sobriety. And she was able to find like four or five people who had done it. And I had Paul's story and then she shared those examples and that like gave me enough hope. But I never even looked. I was just at an AA meeting every
0: night. Yeah. It's incredible. It's I mean, it's it's incredible you're alive. It's incredible that you were able to do that. So many people, you know, so many people leave before the miracle happens. And, you know, I think to some extent, you know, I, I, I'm sure you've seen this, but I've seen people who have come off their medication because their sponsor told them to come off their medication, you know, whatever it was, a psychotropic medication or what have you. And I think it's important to honor the fact that for many people, there is a medical aspect to their their recovery, their sobriety, and that that has to be something that is honored between Their doctor. You know, if you're not a doctor, you shouldn't be telling people that they have to come off of a substance. Um, You just. Yeah, and it's in
1: the book. It tells us seek outside help when appropriate. And I, I think a pretty easy rule for sobriety when it comes to different substances, if you are taking something that's prescribed by a doctor with whom you are honest, and that's a very critical part of it, with whom you are honest. It's not my business in Alcoholics Anonymous to then try to diagnose you or treat your medical condition. As long as you're honest with your doctor, I would tell anyone I sponsor, listen to your doctor. I'm going to help you with the steps and the fellowship. Your doctor's going to help you with the medical stuff.
0: Yeah. As a parent, did you find that you had to discuss these things with your daughter?
1: Not yet. And it was actually there was a lot of tiptoeing that had to be done because she had no idea. I ended up getting full custody of her when she was two and Nicole had been in her life. Her mom moved away to Texas. So she had no idea any of this was going on. It all she knew I had been working out of town for a couple of years where I'd be gone three or four nights every week. So she was used to me being gone. To her, the difference was just now I was coming home and sleeping in my bed, but I'm still gone somewhere every night. So, But then um, when I got two years sober, we talked to her about the fact that I'm two years sober now and there was a period of time I had been drinking. But she's 11, so I don't know how much she's ready to process or handle. So that's kind of the extent of what we've shared with her.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that's a, it's a, a hard all of us are trying to figure out like, how do we talk to our kids about this stuff? What's the, what do we tell them, uh, you know, while also trying to protect them. And it's an interesting conversation that, that I have a lot with people and, and and with my husband in my house. So you are going to be, you're, you just took two years. Is that right?
1: In February. In February. So, okay. So yeah. you're,
0: you're, you're pulling up on three. Yeah. Last question for you. How has the stress of the pandemic and the change, you know, you, you talked about one of the things that helped you get through this was being in a meeting every night and and your involvement and clearly you you put together a lot of routines. How has the pandemic changed your routine, your habits that have helped to keep you in recovery? The primary way
1: is it's changed my meetings. Every night except tonight, on Thursdays, I still go to a hospital and do H&I work. But um, the rest of the meetings I go to are on Zoom. And I actually hear a lot, I'm just really not into Zoom. And I've seen some people relapse during the pandemic. And I hear people say, I'm just really not into Zoom. I like in-person meetings, to which I say, I'm really not into paying taxes. I much prefer to keep all of my money. However, If I want to live as a free citizen, I have to pay those taxes. And the same thing goes for recovery. Like, I've been scarred enough. I now, and I think I needed every drink that happened because I used to say, well, I never got a chance to be a real alcoholic. I was always a heroin addict. Like, I think I needed every drink to convince me there is no way I can safely put a substance in my body. I am totally convinced now. And I believe I need to stay fully engaged in Alcoholics Anonymous. If I'm going to have any chance of maintaining long-term sobriety, so I do it on Zoom, and I can't wait until this is over and we can all hug each other again. But for now, Zoom is what we've got, and it's kind of cool. Like I went to a meeting in Ireland the other weekend. I normally don't go to meetings in Ireland on Saturdays, so it's cool getting able to see different places and hear different messages. But yeah,
0: yeah, that's a, that's a great message. I love that. I love that you know you go anyway. I've you know, we got to do what we have to do to save our lives. And if that's, you know, if it's not optimal, then it's not optimal. So what?
1: Yeah. We just keep moving.
0: Just keep going. Well, it's been a pleasure, Chuck. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your story. And I hope that anyone who's listening who struggles with MAT or knows someone has a much more open mind about the process now.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure as always, Ashley. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye.
0: Awesome. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. lionrock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meetings, schedule, and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.